0: Okay, uh, hello, it's uh, 10 o'clock in Finland and uh, this is our first episode of uh, Out of Line and uh, as a guest we have uh, Greg Johnson, this is Tina and I'm Unesma.
1: And uh, I'm very to have uh, Greg on as our first guest because uh, uh, I have, uh, I think it was years when when I first met Greg and uh, I am also very familiar with his uh, work on uh, countercurrents publishing and his uh, uh, books. And I think uh, Greg's uh, White Nationalist Manifesto especially is uh, pretty groundbreaking uh, when it comes to modern nationalism. Uh, So welcome on board, Greg.
2: Thank you for having me. I understand this is the first of a new show.
1: Yes, this is uh, uh, the first time we are in English on D-Live in on this series. And uh, we used to actually do uh, these sort of live streams on YouTube, uh, uh, but it was uh, several years ago. And then the censorship there got so uh, restrict- restricting that it didn't really make much sense to operate on YouTube anymore because uh, I kept getting shadow banned and uh, uh, my content was always limited so that the view count uh, wasn't visible. People weren't able to comment any of my videos. Uh, but here on DLive live I have found that it's, uh, th- this is a much more free platform to uh, discuss even controversial topics.
2: Yeah, I think that YouTube is a just a terrible platform now. I was never that invested in it. I had a YouTube channel. We had thousands and thousands of subscribers to it before it was deleted entirely. But people that I know who were more invested in it were telling me stories that were very disturbing. For instance, they would get strikes on videos that were not even made public. They were draft videos. And that really indicated to me that there was no process of review whereby people were complaining about videos and things like that and then somebody was coming in. But rather there were people who were actively trolling through people's accounts, spying on them, looking for content that they could censor. And I'm not really comfortable with that. I would never use a phone company if it was a standard procedure for somebody to be listening in at the phone company, on our conversations, right? And cutting us off if they don't like the things we're saying. And so I just find YouTube to be a really uh, Orwellian kind of platform. And it's the same thing with Facebook. Uh, It became very clear to me near the end of my time on Facebook that there were simply people spying on me right? It yeah. was not some kind of review process where there were outside observers who were called in because of some complaint. There were people spying on me personally, on the groups that I was in and things like that. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I knew that there's, there's a certain amount of surveillance that's always present with modern communications. We We have to be realistic about that. But I went into using these social media platforms because I thought that I could get more out of those platforms than the establishment could. And it's become very, very clear that we're getting less and less out of these uh, mainstream platforms like YouTube and Facebook. And at a certain point, uh, we're just giving them information that they're going to use against us and getting nothing in return. And uh,
1: you're absolutely right. And, uh Uh, They were happy to take the money uh, coming in from uh, independent content creators when they were still building the platform. But now now that they have the monopoly, they have decided that uh, all independent uh, content creators, not just political ones, but, but everyone... All all independent small channels uh, are useless and unimportant to them. And they just want to be basically like the mainstream media number two. That they want to have uh, the CNN and NBC there. They want to have the late night talk show hosts. And they are actually on YouTube. YouTube is now paying celebrities to set up YouTube channels. (laughs) So so they are just... uh, choosing this uh, direction that I uh, really dislike. And it's not just hitting people like uh, us uh, who are like politically on the controversial side, but it's also hitting everyone else that I see. Like yoga channels complain about their uh, uh, viewers... Uh, view count going down because YouTube uh, doesn't recommend their channel because they are independent content creators. They just recommend like these huge uh, network channels and mm-hmm. uh, like uh, cultural commentary, movie channels all, all these uh, independent creators are having the same problems facing these arbitrary uh, rules. They constantly have to fear tri- strikes even though they have all the time tried to follow the guidelines that are made intentionally vague. Uh, So uh, we still have a a couple of YouTube channels that are open uh, and YouTube suspended our main channel with zero strikes earlier. But uh, we still decided that uh, uh, we are not going to stay on YouTube anymore because uh, we don't want to give viewers and a share of our income to such platform that uh, treats content creators that way and here on DLive we have actually gathered larger audiences than on YouTube even though this is a smaller platform because here our content is actually shown to the people who might want to see it that it's not uh, being pushed in uh, into some uh, uh, murky corner that it's actually recommended to viewers. So I think there is a lot of potential in these uh, new sort of alternative platforms.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a huge opportunity if somebody can create a free speech monetizable platform, not just for um, political commentary, dissident political commentary, but just for all this independently created content, all these little... YouTube cottage industries that have sprung up, I think would start migrating to such a place. And it could be very, very profitable, financially speaking, but also really bring about conditions for a certain cultural renaissance. YouTube for a while was a wonderful thing. When they had their algorithms set up to expand people's horizons, it was a wonderful thing. And they've uh, brought a screaming halt to that now. And now YouTube is all about basically uh, roping people into the sort of cons- you know, s- consensus trance that everybody's in, and frankly, dissident uh, po- podcasters or you know YouTubers are almost just functioning now as just bait <laughs> to get people uh, to get people into basically a, a trap, a mental trap the, where they're people are being engineered towards uh, the consensus rather than uh, to expand, towards spanning their uh, horizons.
1: Yes, and uh, now they have even gone into this, uh, the, the, uh, turned the algorithm into a sort of brainwashing that I have noticed that uh, since there are some channels that I cannot uh, follow uh, elsewhere, uh, I uh, watch... Uh, watch them on YouTube and whenever I watch any nationalist content on YouTube it immediately recommends to me stuff like the Hoover Institution, Breitbart, uh, Fox News, Uh, so this uh, sort of uh, mainstream conservative ink content. Even though I keep pressing that I'm not interested in these channels uh, and still YouTube tries to push them on me whenever I watch uh, videos from uh, um, channels like American Renaissance uh, because uh, and they have actually stated this in one announcement that uh, they are trying to guide people to more like moderate content <laughs> so they are basically trying to push content that people don't like on people and I don't see how they see that as a successful business model
2: Well, they're in the business of propaganda, basically. They're in the business of maintaining the power structure that exists today. That's their business, and they're willing to lose money to do that. A lot of movie studios lose a lot of money putting out woke propaganda movies, for instance, uh, because their business is not making money by entertaining people. Their business is brainwashing people and maintaining a certain establishment in power and pushing its agenda forward. And if they go broke doing that, <laughs> we've seen lots of bailouts recently. Eventually, who knows, there'll be a giant Disney bailout because they're, they're putting out so many black Disney princess movies and things like that that they're going to need federal bailouts uh, to keep them going.
1: Yeah, and I have... A- I I have sort of uh, faith that uh, Disney movies might be uh, or that they seem to be the last ones to go down the SJW route because they are targeted mainly towards uh, children, at least the animated ones. And children cannot be fooled as easily. So uh, while you can push this uh, diversity agenda... Uh, and uh, the body positivity and all that on grown-ups and uh, reason them into believing that it's actually a good good thing to see stuff like that on uh, uh, on in movies. Uh, it's more difficult to persuade children from it. So just, uh, you you uh, uh, it's it would be very difficult to uh, convince a, a five-year-old to like uh, like. A, uh, a black, uh, fat, uh, uh, trans uh, Disney princess with a bus cut. So, like, you wouldn't <laughs> be able to get a five-year-old to want to buy that doll. But if you pre- present a five-year-old with the blonde, uh, skinny, beautiful Elsa doll with the wonderful dress and all that, they will want it. So that's why mm-hmm. I think children's movies are sort of this last stand, uh, this last bastion of any common sense because you cannot... Uh, Uh, you cannot get children to uh, buy stuff out of virtue signaling or like stuff out of virtue signaling.
2: Yeah, yeah, from the mouths of babes, right? So so do you want to talk about the contemporary, the latest politics of corona?
1: Absolutely, Uh, yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Before that, uh, Full Moon Ancestry says on uh, D-Live, he says, Greg Johnson has the most difficult task of having to Proofread my articles each week. Thanks, Greg. I don't oh, know if you know Full Moon Ancestry, but uh, he's... Uh, uh,
2: well, I, I don't know um, okay. the, the name I'm not recognizing. But yeah, uh, we, uh, we have a lot of great writers, though. So, yeah. And most of them are quite, quite good and require very little proofreading, I have to say. Uh, there was one time uh, when I had to run off to an appointment and i got an article in the mail uh, an email uh, with an article by roger devlin and i thought you know i never have to make any changes anyway <laughs> so i just i just put it online and went off to my appointment and came back a couple hours later and then took a look at it just to make sure that it was okay uh, we we do have writers who uh, you know produce really really clean work so my 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 work is not as hard as it might seem
1: and I actually uh, just uh, a couple of days ago finished uh, Devlin's uh, Sexual Utopia in Power now that it has been published in Finnish. So I bought the Finnish version of it and finished it a couple of days ago. And it was a very interesting read.
2: He's a great writer. I'm glad it's finally out and finished. That's That's good news. I knew it was coming, but I didn't know that it was finished.
1: And... Uh, uh, We sort of got uh, sidetracked there for a moment uh, uh, to discuss these uh, uh, social media things. Uh, But uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, our main topic here is the coronavirus. And I have noticed that you have been uh, active in uh, uh, the discussion about this uh, uh, and uh, all of the phenomena surrounding the coronavirus, because you have a lot of political takes, a lot of propaganda, you have a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, floating around. So uh, uh, how would you, like, uh, if you had to put it shortly, put your opinion about all this?
2: Well, I, I think it's a real problem. I think it's a serious problem. I don't think it is mere, merely hysteria. I don't think it's just the flu, bro. Uh, what happened in China and what happened in Italy, what's happening in Spain is, is a serious pandemic. And as soon as I started hearing about this, I started getting more cautious. And I thought, it's inevitable that this will show up in Europe and the United States. It was just a matter of time. Why was it inevitable? Because international travel, so cheap, so much of it goes on. International trade, we are so globalized. Most countries have so many people coming through airport uh, Customs, that there's no real oversight. There's no re- ability to, to do anything really uh, to prevent sick people from coming in. And even, and we're not even looking for that, right? I mean, customs is looking for kids smuggling iguanas home in their luggage and things like that. Uh, they're, they're not looking for sick people generally. That's just not done. And so, uh, globalization really was going to make a Corona pandemic inevitable in Europe and the United States. And for me, it was just a matter of time. So I started being more careful, <laughs> washing my hands, and and uh, I stopped going to music events and movies and things in the middle of February. And uh, it was just a matter of time when it got got to the United States. And what I predicted... Has basically come to pass. The countries that are least liberal, least multicultural, least xenophilic, right, least welcoming of strangers, that have real borders and real controls. They are the ones who have been less hit by this, whereas countries that embrace diversity and globalization and global capitalism and think that uh, it's it's more threatening to have people stigmatizing the Chinese than to have people dying uh, in hospitals, those countries are going to get hit hard. And that's really happened. Now, the United States has been especially hard hit because the United States is an entirely liberal country. We've got left-wing liberalism, and right-wing liberalism. But both of them are equally wedded to globalization. Uh, The the right-wing in America is all about economics. They're heavily invested in global trade. They're constantly worried about the stock market. Their basic attitude in America was, how do we protect our investments from people who are too afraid to go out and shop? That was the first thought that went through the minds of people on the right. And the people on the left, their thinking was, uh, how how do we prevent racism from raising its ugly head when people start worrying about getting sick and dying? They, they were more concerned about these liberal ideological fixations than they were about the health of the people of America. There are very few people, very few politicians in America who think primarily in terms of the common good, right? The Republicans identify with capitalism. The the Democrats identify with others, non-whites, the global South. They identify primarily with people who aren't American when you get right down to it. So I, I figured that the United States would be uniquely paralyzed in its ability to deal effectively with this. And I did hope, though, that our... Somewhat populist president uh, would would at least step up uh, and and deal with this crisis and his uh, his reaction has been very mixed it, it was it 's been really kind of bad to be honest because he was listening to the republicans the Republicans think that economics is more important than public health, and their basic attitude is is that well what's an acceptable number of these cattle to die uh, before we will conceive of uh, slowing down the shopping and the international trade and travel? What number of people uh, are we willing to allow to die before we would, would countenance any kind of restrictions on our liberty, right? And uh, they're willing to let a, quite a lot of people die, unfortunately. And I think any self-respecting person has to just rebel against that kind of tyrannical, heartless elitism and say, no, the the people come first. Public health comes first. Uh, But, you know, America today, as we were waiting for this to begin, the number of cases in America has topped 600,000. And the number of deaths has topped 25,000. In By the end of this week, or maybe by early next week, there will be a million cases in all likelihood. And the deaths will probably have doubled by then. And I think it's going to continue for a very long time. It seemed to be leveling off in New York, but it's jumped back up again in New York. Uh, countries that thought they had it under control, places like Singapore are now uh, and, and Hong Kong, are now experiencing second surges of this so I, I think this is going to be with us for a very long time, and uh, the again, the countries that are most nationalist are going to be the ones that ride this out uh, best the ones that are least liberal in the sense that they emphasize individual liberty right, and the idea that there 's no such thing as the common good we don 't have to sacrifice for the the social good. countries like that are are, are deeply, deeply disadvantaged. And so this teaches a lot of really good political lessons. It's anti-globalization. It's uh, anti-globalization in the sense of free movement of people and economic globalization. It's anti-liberal. It's anti-fake right-wing American capitalist worshiping conservatism. Uh, It's also very much an anti-democratic thing. One of the reasons why America was hit so hard is that America is a very democratic country. And in democratic administrations, people know that it's very unlikely that there will be some severe pandemic during their term in office, right? It's always more likely to be somebody else's problem, and therefore elected officials really don't think and plan long-term anymore. The people who do have the ability to think and plan long-term, these unelected bureaucracies, we call them now the deep state, right? Uh, These people actually have the ability to plan, but in the United States, we don't trust these people anymore. And especially our president who has been targeted by these people, doesn't trust them. And so that that was a terrible situation to be in. The the collapse of social trust due to diversity, uh, due to corruption, has, has made it very difficult for Americans to coordinate. And the fact that Americans are just so resolutely individualistic that they won't, you know, not go to the movies for the common good. Uh, It just just makes us very, very vulnerable. So I think this is going to be very bad for the United States. And I think it's a good lesson, though. We've been warning people rationally, patiently for decades about these problems. But people don't learn by reason. They learn by experience. And the experiences they learn the most from are experiences of suffering, unfortunately. Uh,
0: Did you watch yesterday's uh, Trump press conference?
2: No, no, I haven't seen that. I, uh,
0: uh, I recommend it. It was uh, he was, it was one of his best uh, ones. Uh, he was really on fire yesterday. But uh, yeah, I, I would say that the U.S. has handled this not so badly uh, as like uh, as we have in Europe. Uh, Finland, uh, we have done nothing. Uh, Sweden has done nothing. Uh, it's uh, it's just out of luck that we uh, have only fifty fifty deaths in Finland.
1: Oh, not mm-hmm. not uh, not I would say luck. I would say it's about having a homogeneous and a responsible population. That Finns have always had this strong sense of in-group solidarity towards other mm-hmm. Finns, and uh, uh, it's uh, this sort of winter war spirit we call it. That uh, this uh, uh, that mm-hmm. in times of crisis we need to stick together. So Finns have. Uh, even without uh, much mandatory restrictions, held held on to the social distancing very well in comparison to our neighbors.
2: Yeah, well, Finns tend to be good at social distancing. That's one of the things (laughs) that's said about Finns. Uh, And I I appreciate that because I'm something of an introvert myself. Uh, So, yeah. But, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Countries like uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary – those countries have done fairly well because, well, they they weren't suckers for the migrant crisis, and since twenty fifteen, they've become more xenophobic, and they kind of have egged one another on in responding to this in a in a fairly good way. So, Finland, uh, well, I, I actually Sweden, Sweden and Hungary have about the same population, you know, about ten million people, and right now. Sweden has about 10 times the number of cases that Hungary has and, and 10 times the fatalities. And there's every reason to think that the Swedes are cooking the books on this because they're not actually counting as coronavirus deaths people who die with some kind of comorbidity, which is, a, I think, a, a very dishonest way of, of under, undercounting the, the impact of this virus.
0: Yeah, they have 20 times more deaths than uh, Finland has. And uh, well, similar, today we, we got the information that uh, in Helsinki, uh, like 20% of the cases are of Somalis.
2: Yeah, um, that's another thing that's fascinating. These non-white colonist populations in Europe and non-whites in America, they don't trust the government they're out of touch. They don't listen. And therefore, they are not practicing social distancing. Uh, and therefore, it's spreading amongst them rapidly. The most egregious group for this actually is Orthodox Jews in America. They're being savaged by this, uh, especially in, in New York State. They're being hard hit because they simply ignored all the social distancing rules and there was a an article fairly early on in this, I think it was before it really hit in the States, saying that American Jews are more vulnerable because, and the, this is an almost verbatim quote from memory, their social networks are twice as dense as the average Americans, which is kind of interesting. They They definitely are networkers. Uh, that 's one thing we know about uh, the American jewish population they 're highly networked, but yeah, apparently they they just have such dense social interactions and especially the orthodox ones that cling together, they have you know large services and ceremonies and gatherings all the time uh, and they weren 't practicing distancing, and so this is really uh, just Worked their its way rapidly through their communities. And, and this is a sign of the pathology of diversity, basically. Diverse societies breed low social trust. And any kind of group that experiences itself as a social outgroup doesn't trust the mainstream, and therefore they resist sensible public health measures and, and and that's just a, a another weakness of diversity. Diversity may be our greatest weakness uh, when it comes right down to it, uh, especially in dealing with pandemics. Diversity, liberalism, multiculturalism—these are serious weaknesses. And one of the things I hope we can deal with uh, in the aftermath of this, one of the things I hope we can accomplish, is to push this in people's faces and and get them to contemplate this, diversity has failed, multiculturalism has failed, globalization has failed, liberalism has failed. These things make us vulnerable. One of the things that's going on today is white societies are just being pulverized by this fake moral absolute that nothing is worse than racism or xenophobia and that nothing is better than diversity and openness. And now we have very concrete examples of how xenophobia protects us and openness makes us vulnerable. So when people try and push this idea that, oh, diversity, diversity, globalization, it's wonderful. You you have to just say, well, wait a second here. Is it always wonderful? Aren't there certain circumstances where this makes us more vulnerable like coronavirus? And just to try and prize their white knuckled hands off this idea that there's some moral absolutes here about diversity being a good thing and racism and xenophobia being bad just to just to prize people off these foolish fake absolute fixations is going to make it a lot more easy to have rational discourse about politics in the future. At least that's my hope. The trouble is, of course, is that All the crazies who have created the conditions that have made this possible are crowding to their microphones, and they have the megaphones, not just microphones. They've got megaphones. People like Henry Kissinger, for instance, 96 years old, fat as a beach ball. Uh, You know, he's at death's door, and he's pushing himself forward to say, we need more globalization to deal with crises like these. So we're going to have to compete, right? I think our message is is being argued for by events but the fools who created this problem they're not going to admit that they're not going to go quietly they're not going to hang their heads in shame they're going to double down and they're going to try and use us to grab more power and we just we have to stop that so this is a really good opportunity frankly for people of nationalist populist bent to really insert ourselves into something that's absolutely central to everybody's attention right now. And a lot of people are at home, right? A lot of people are online. Uh, a lot of people are receptive to this. We really have to get the message out and we need to keep the message focused. Sadly, I think a lot of our people have the wrong message. Their messaging is off. And, and that's, that's just a wasted opportunity, I think.
1: And. Uh- I think this is also a sort of uh, interesting reminder of our place in the nature, that we are a part of nature, and there is a reason for why we have uh, developed to be the way we are, because uh, these days uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, uh, consensus in the media and uh, entertainment is that basically everything is a social construct, we are all individuals, we are all blank slates, and uh, And that we are somehow detached from nature, that we are not uh, part of the nature and uh, subject to evolution and evolutionary psychology uh, uh, like uh, everything else in nature, but uh, somehow we are above it and uh, uh, that we have somehow transcended it. But uh, this is a good reminder that there is a good reason for why even babies show signs of xenophobia, that why we are xenophobes by nature, because it protects us, because it has been always a handy feature for people uh, to uh, be wary of strange things things that are unfamiliar to them, because uh, there might be danger there. It might turn out that there is no danger, but it's better to be wary. And those people who have been wary about strangers and strange things have uh, survived, while those who have always trusted strangers and had no fear, uh, they have uh, uh, died away and uh, their genes are out of our gene pool. So there is a reason for for why uh, humans have such strong tendency for xenophobia. And I think this is sort of also a reminder that we are a part of the nature and evolution, evolution does apply to us and we haven't transcended it.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. One thing that bothers me about the response of our community, loosely speaking, to this crisis is a surprising number of our people have turned uh, towards the, it's just the flu bro libertarian conservative kind of thing. You're not going to mess with my liberty and, uh, oh my God, the stock market and and all this kind of stuff. It's very disappointing. This is such a great opportunity for us. But unfortunately, what this is, it's an opportunity for us to talk about things like the common good and the necessity of state action. And not just any state action, not stupid state action, right? Uh, But state action is required in emergencies like this. And the more liberal a society is, and by liberal, I mean liberal in the broad sense, individualist, the less people are capable of wrapping their heads around that necessity. And so libertarians especially, there are some libertarians who don't even believe in the state at all. And if they believe in any state at all, it's just to facilitate individuals from doing their own, for individuals doing their own thing and preventing other people from interfering with it. Yeah. yeah. Go go Go, go ahead. I mean, that attitude, that attitude basically makes it impossible for the state to enforce boundaries and borders to begin with. Right. And so When any kind of crisis comes along that requires collective solutions, collective problems for collective solutions, they are real. They do happen, right? When these things come along, the libertarian individualist simply denies it. They are deniers of any kind of environmental issues, not just climate change, which I think is largely fake, but any kind of environmental issues that require any kind of collective state solutions, they simply deny it. And when viruses like this, pandemics, come along, they immediately move to denial. And the fact that this is not rational is fairly obvious because they're, they they constantly change their stories and their goalposts, but the, the underlying assumption is always the same, which is that no state action is necessary or legitimate. And we, we end up battling with a lot of people who are generally on our side. Uh, but on, on this issue, which is a deep fundamental philosophical issue, they're opposed to me and you and what populists stand for. Populists believe that there is something called the common good and the state needs to pursue that. And libertarian individ- individualists don't believe that. And so a lot of them are just in a denial mode uh, about this, uh, about this crisis and and that's very disappointing because that just makes them, well, it makes them irrelevant in some ways. Their only relevance is as people who slow down and, and hamper a rational response to a serious problem.
1: And, and disappointing is, I think, a very uh, good word for it because uh, I have noticed that people often have this attitude that when I complain about uh, this um, Uh, these flu bros that I'm just uh, pissed at them disagreeing with me Uh, when in fact it indeed is this actual sadness and disappointment especially regarding certain people uh, who have uh, taken this uh, very bizarre stance because when uh, 15 to 100 to 2000 of your people, your countrymen are dying of some disease, disease every day and uh, you are talking about well uh, I'm going to have to a bar and have a beer because my liberty and my rights and constitution and what- whatever then you are on the wrong track it's it's very difficult to justify that sort of thinking as a nationalist that uh, while this sort of crisis is happening, that it's not your highest priority to take care of your own people. That's just, uh, I, I, I don't understand how someone who claims to care for their people can complain about not being able to go to a bar uh, while people are actually dying.
2: Yeah, no. yeah I, I agree. If you, if you want an
0: example of a libertarian country or a libertarian approach, it's Sweden. They have yeah. mm-hmm. done absolutely no uh, measures against anything. And, Nothing mandatory. And they have 1,000 deaths. Uh, only today they had uh, over 100. And so yeah. it's 100 per day, whereas Finland has 50, uh, mm-hmm. had 50 deaths in,
2: uh, yeah. in two months. One of the things that the minimizers and denialists have been trying to say is that the the figures are exaggerated because you should only count a person as a coronavirus victim if that's the only thing they have. And so they want to say, oh, these people had comorbidities and therefore that, that uh, disqualifies it. But, you know, that's completely arbitrary. For, for one thing, if you had that criterion, nobody would ever have died of AIDS. Because nobody dies just of HIV, they die of some kind of opportunistic infection or condition that they get because of a weakened immune system, right? Uh, when people ha- who have hypertension or asthma or who are obese, whatever, oftentimes these people have many years left in them, but they do have health problems, serious health problems. If they're in the hospital and on a ventilator and dead because of uh, coronavirus, it's very reasonable to say that's what knocked them over into the dead category, right? That's what finished them off. Sweden is the only country that I know of that follows that arbitrarily narrow criterion of a coronavirus death. So we have to be very skeptical of the number of deaths that they've reported. It could be much higher. Uh, and uh, that that that's something that needs to be taken into account. It could be much, much higher there. Uh, So, you know, in the United States, well, uh, there are about 10 million people in New York City and, you know, a couple surrounding counties, maybe 10 million people in New York City and out onto Long Island. there have been 100,000 people infected just in New York City now or more than 100,000 and and more than 10,000 have died. So that's 10 times the figures uh, that Sweden has, uh, which is which is really astonishing. So um, th- th- this is not a trivial problem, and it's certainly not the flu. For one thing, a lot of people are immune to the flu. Uh, we have vaccines for the flu. We don't have immunity for this in our population already. We don't have vaccines for it. And... You know the flu doesn't it doesn't have for instance people are coming out of uh, hospitals now having gone through coronavirus with liver damage and serious lung damage, things that are probably going to shave years off their lives it's that's a lot more serious than any flu that I've heard of
1: yeah and i I get uh, most annoyed when I see misinformation spread about this, and the comor- comorbidity stuff is one aspect that uh, is often used in a misinformative way. That uh, uh, people talk about these comorbidities and they say, "Oh, oh look, ninety five percent of people who died had a comorbidity," but and they use that uh, to sort of create the argument that this only affects those who are very frail like basically like cancer patients and uh, uh, people who are over 85 years old or something like that but when you actually look at the comorbidities that what they actually are it's diabetes high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, asthma. They are completely normal diseases, and actually 48% of the U.S. population are in the risk group for this. They have some, some, some of those common comorbidities. So uh, the, the thing that people had pre-existing conditions, it doesn't mean that it only affects some very small minority of extremely sick people.
2: Oh, yeah. There are tens of millions of obese Americans. There are probably tens of millions of diabetic Americans. There are millions of Americans with asthma. All of these are dangers. And so, yeah, if if corona only kills people who have serious health problems, well, th- that could be up to a third of the American population. That's a serious problem, and it's a lot more serious than any flu.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
2: So um,
0: there are many people saying that, yeah, this is, as you said, that uh, this is an opportunity for us to uh, win after the, after the pandemic. So maybe we could talk more about this. Uh, is it is it really uh, possible that we win because of this uh, thing or will things get back to normal as they, uh, they were before, like uh, opening the borders again and... Uh, Mm -hmm. going back to China business, buying uh, from their factories and and so on? Or do you think that the globalists or the leftists will somehow uh, lose or change their behavior?
2: Well, nothing is guaranteed. And when I say that this gives us certain advantages, that simply means that it's an opportunity for us to move things in our direction. But... It's not a a sure thing by any means. But right now in the United States, for instance, there is a real mainstream discussion of bringing certain industries back from China. That was just not a, a year ago in America. That was just not politically possible. People weren't talking about that. And now they're talking about it. And with good reason. One thing I think that's very, very good about coronavirus is that it targets our cosmopolitan elites. It targets people who fly a lot. It targets people in big cities. New York. New York is the capital of the world, okay, for all intents and purposes. It's the most important city on planet Earth, and it is the hardest hit, and I predicted it would be the hardest hit, and I was on the phone with all my friends in New York back in February saying, be careful, (laughs) batten down your hatches, Maybe you should go to your country house or something like that. You know, have have an escape ready because I figured it would be hit hardest because it's the most global city, the most cosmopolitan city. And that's the city where the people who rule America are. Not, you know, the the, the people, of course, Washington is the capital. But between Washington and New York, I would say 95% of important decisions are made in America. It hits very close, therefore, to our, our our elites. And our elites, well, they take themselves seriously. <laughs> they, don't, they don't take us seriously for the most part, but they do take their own safety very seriously. Uh, you know, you think of all these politicians who go around shaking hands <laughs> with one another all the time, meeting people, flying all over the globe. When Boris Johnson got sick, I thought, well, this is going to mark a change in the policy in the UK because when the elites suddenly are getting sick, this notion of herd immunity and riding it out and not spooking the stock market goes right out the window. So I I do think that the vulnerability that these people feel, not political vulnerability so much as personal vulnerability to death. It's like a gun pointed at them, and they're not going to forget this, uh, very easily. But yeah, we have to keep up the pressure. We have to keep talking about this and arguing for this. And if people start saying after it's over, oh, well, it wasn't so bad. Let's go back to normal. Let's say, no, we need a new normal. We need a new normal where we're not as vulnerable to this anymore. And I, and I do think that we have the floor in a sense. We have an in into mainstream debates. And this is a huge opportunity. We just can't slack off. We can't assume that history is going to do our work for us. But we we really have to work hard and focused on this and continue to talk about this. I wish I could just blog about this completely for the next six months or something. Uh, But I just don't have time. I've got other things I have to do. But some of us who are really into it, we should be definitely writing about this practically full-time because this, this is such a great political opportunity.
1: And I think it's sort of strange uh, that uh, for a long time in the nationalist scene, people have criticized the current economic system that uh, uh, <clears throat> everything from uh, the uh, – our. Uh, debt-based economy that is basically based uh, off of uh, uh, inventing money out of thin air and endless debt and these uh, of course Jewish banks basically running everything and uh, through debt having a lot of control uh, uh, over independent nations and everything being outsourced to China and India uh, and now that we are in a situation where we actually might get some sort of uh, solutions for these problems and we might actually get a reality check now that uh, companies are seeing that, uh, how vul- vulnerable this current system is, that it's strange that then you have nationalists who are basically screaming that no, we must rescue the economy. That, uh, as if the economy that existed uh, is so perfect that we absolutely need to make sure that nothing, nothing interferes with it.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm a populist. <laughs> I, I would love to see some severe economic changes, some strict and devastating economic changes in some way, if we could get good policies out of it. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, what was passed was massive bailouts for companies that have done horribly irresponsible things. Same is happening in Germany and other Western European countries. Companies that have spent all of their income buying back stock and things like that uh, recently, they're getting bailouts. Uh, whereas companies that have been fiscally prudent well, they're they're just supposed to, I guess, run through their cash, re- <laughs> their cash, right, uh, and uh, and hope for the best. It, it's it's very unfair. It, it rewards improvident people. It re- rewards reckless behavior. There's what we call a moral hazard here. Uh, the best thing to have done in the United States would have been to take the whatever figure was agreed on for a bailout. Uh, you know, a trillion dollars. Divide a trillion dollars by the number of people who are legally in the United States (laughs) or U.S. citizens in the United States uh, and send them all a check and maybe send them four checks over a four-month period, right? so they don't blow it all at once if they're <laughs> irresponsible people, right? But simply take all that money and put it in the hands of individuals and let individuals spend it or save it as they will. That would be a hugely advantageous thing because what it would do is it would create all kinds of liquidity. Uh, it would you know, fund consumer demand, but then it would put it in the, in the hands of the businesses to attract the money that they need or not. Uh, it wouldn't depend on major you know, airline companies and things like that, or or major uh, manufacturers like Boeing's ability to basically uh, grease the palms of a few people in Washington and get bailouts, right? They'd have to appeal to large numbers of people to hand over their checks to them. And that's good, honest business as opposed to corruption, which is basically what we got with this, uh, with this bailout. We got a huge amount of corporate corruption,
0: yeah, so this is, uh, it is an opportunity for us to win, but uh, instead of uh, infighting and uh, whining about uh, the, the measures that the government makes, we should use this time to push the ideas because uh, it, is, it is times like this that help uh, help people understand or accept yeah. these ideas.
2: Yeah, yeah. But just, for instance, using the idea of a universal basic income payment or something, that's a great idea. And frankly, uh, these bailouts should have been done that way. In Canada, they're sending $2,000 a month for four months to Canadians to help them deal with this economic uh, downturn. That's a far more populist move from Justin Trudeau, right, than from Donald Trump. But of course Trump doesn't have the power to do what he really wants, right? Uh, all these bills are end up being huge compromises. And uh, Trump is just one factor. You've got the Democrats who are basically giving huge uh, amounts of money to non-whites and you've got the Republicans who are giving huge amounts of money to Wall Street and and big business and the the American public doesn 't get much directly, right twelve hundred dollars basically as a check that 's not much relief, so I mean we can make p- these sorts of points to say this is a way a real populist government that cared about the people and that 's not corrupted by special interests would uh, would do this when in the United States, uh, while tens of millions of Americans are now. Uh, thrown into economic uncertainty and unemployment. The Republican Party is still talking about bringing in guest workers and lowering American wages and increasing competition for jobs. And the Democrats are talking about bringing in more refugees. Uh, It really is a, a great opportunity for us to just point and say, these people can't even pretend for the duration of this crisis to be putting Americans first they They are so wedded to basically demographically replacing us that they won 't even hit pause on this in the face of a national crisis it 's really damning to the american establishment and
1: uh, well nationalists are uh... fighting over whether they should be able to have those beers at the local restaurant. Uh, All other interest groups are already pushing their agenda You have climate activists saying that, oh, look how quickly we can take measures if we really want to. So after all this is true, let's go through with all of our climate actions because uh, this shows that we can do it if we just want to. And then you have the conservative Inc. who have the coldest takes of all and you see these absolutely awful, awful (laughs) statements that uh, just go to show what horrible people we are dealing with, like Charlie Kirk who used the mortality rate in Italy to, as a political weapon against Bernie Sanders. And he said that the fatalities in Italy and the overburdening of the healthcare system comes from socialized medicine, and that's what Bernie Sanders wants. So, and, so Bernie Sanders wants the, those Italy death counts to United States. And when you actually yeah. fact check that, uh, you realize that uh, actually Italy has uh, three times the hospital beds per capita than the uh, USA does, and and this has nothing to do with socialized healthcare. And uh, and uh, especially when I I I sort of I some I I sort of have difficulty understanding how easy it is to market to poor white Americans this idea that. Uh, yeah, you should be you should die from curable diseases if you're poor. That <laughs> uh, it it's very strange to me that I understand it in the ethnic sense that because you have a very diverse country the whites of course know that they would be they would end up paying most of the bill and other groups would be mostly using their socialized healthcare but still I I sort of have difficulty understanding the uh, resistance poor whites have against socialized medicine.
2: Yeah, well, it really does have to do with diversity, honestly. The the other thing though that it has to do with is the the fact that we fund our government through taxation and borrowing and things like that. I honestly question Th- those those underlying assumptions, I do not see why one could not have a, a system where basically uh, you have a universal basic income. Uh, you don't allow banks to create money. Uh, the state creates credit and gives money to people every month, which basically would bundle together all the things that they get from the state anyway, you know, unemployment insurance and health insurance and stuff like that. And just give it to them in one check, and then people go out and they can spend it on various things if they want more, they can you know, of course have jobs uh but the the The, the point is is that there's no necess- there's no necessity of the state borrowing money where in the world how in the world did it become necessary for the government, which has the power to create money? How is it necessary for governments to borrow money from private banks? How is that even possible? Well, it goes back to the time when money was gold or silver, right? And if you didn't have it and some bank did, you'd have to borrow it. But we've gotten into a world of fiat currency where the state can basically create currency at will. And as long as they're not creating way too much of it or way too little and causing economic inflation or deflation... Uh, they can they can just make it a policy of depositing a certain amount of credit into everybody's account every month. Uh, and you you can fund a lot of things that way. The state should be able to fund things without taxation and without borrowing. And so the idea that we need to redistribute wealth through taxation and stuff like that, all of that is buying into, I think, a – a model of of money and a model of state funding that's actually not necessary. We don't need to do that. And so a lot of people say I don't want to have socialized medicine because I'm going to be paying for it out of my tax taxes. Uh, And I'm going to be paying for people who are you know fat and not taking care of themselves or whatever. And I'm I'm taking care of myself. Why should I subsidize the fat people next door? That that attitude all that would go away if we just got rid of this idea that we would fund certain things through taxation to begin with. Because, yeah, taxation does require re- – does entail inevitably redistribution. If everyone's paying the same amount and some people are using less of it, yeah, some people are are, are getting uh, less for their money. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's an antiquated model in some ways.
1: Yeah, and right now we are already in – an economy where money is basically being invented uh, on the spot but uh, uh, now it's just the banks doing it that when uh, for example an individual goes to a bank and applies for a loan it's not like the bank checks that they actually have that amount of money somewhere reserved uh, for that person The, uh, the money is basically made up on the spot when that loan is created and uh, and uh, ever since we gave up uh, all of these uh, uh, gold uh, standards like gold standard uh, ever since then uh, banks have been able to uh, lend out the same dollar to several different people at the same time which basically means inventing money out of thin air so we already are in that sort of economy, but right now we are just handing that power to banks instead of the state
2: yeah it's 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 privatized uh, and therefore it's not in principle, how to put it, publicly accountable. Of course, governments can be very, very bad. there's no question about it. Governments can be captured by elites that really only rule in their interests and so on and so forth. But at least a government is, in principle, responsible to the public good. A a private bank doesn't have that same level of accountability. And there are people who are trained by free market economists to say, oh, we can't have the government getting involved with this. Look, it's being done privately by unaccountable people. Uh, it would be better if it were done publicly by people who are held accountable to the public good and with some transparency about their decisions. I cannot see how that would lower the quality of economic decision-making. But a lot of free market types say, oh, that would cause all kinds of economic chaos and bad decisions. It can't be any worse than the moral hazards created by allowing a certain class of public uh, politically connected insiders to just create wealth and then uh, basically loan it out to other people at interest.
1: Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, one thing I also think is an uh, interesting um, Uh, point to think about, uh, it's the impact on homes, because uh, uh, this hasn't been just a reality check when it comes to our nature or uh, the flaws in our uh, uh, economic system, but also in how we run things in uh, our family lives or our everyday lives, because uh, once these uh, lockdown measures uh, started, uh, those people who uh, lived the uh, liberal lifestyle, that they uh, live a single lifestyle, uh, they <clears throat> cannot uh, really uh, take care of themselves, they eat out, uh, they cannot cook, uh, they, they were the people who uh, were worst off when they ended up quarantined in their their homes. They complained that there's nothing they can do. I even saw one male, like, mainstream media journalist claim that uh, people are going to starve because they cannot go to restaurants because not everybody can cook. <laughs> and, and <laughs> like, I see uh, and I especially enjoy seeing uh, single activists because you have these uh, single activists, like single bloggers, who blog about their single lives and, and Uh, feel the need to every week uh, convince themselves and other people that being single is absolutely wonderful. And basically on day one of being locked at home, they were complaining that they are lonely, they are bored and they wish that they had a (laughs) boyfriend.
2: Right. Right. You know, that, that dog or that cat isn't very good company uh, for all, all your human needs at least. Right. Yeah. I, I think that this, this is true. It's, it's, Forcing people, okay, you know, I, 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 I'm not a super materialistic person, but I do buy books, okay? Books are my thing. I, I have way too many books. And when suddenly I couldn't travel as much or go out as much, shops were closing, things like that, I was afraid, frankly, to, you know, it's like, why, why get on a streetcar surrounded by people? just on a whim to go to a bookstore to buy a book that I might not read for two years just because it's a way of getting out and just, you know, cheap stimulation, right? Suddenly that seemed less cheap (laughs) when, when your life is at stake, right? And so what it forced me to do is it forced me to take another look at the stuff I already had and appreciate it more. Now, materialism starts trembling and crumbling when people say you know i've got enough stuff i i've got books that i haven't read yet i've got dvds that i'd love to watch again etc etc uh, we we can appreciate what we already have we don't need new stuff we don't need to be so restless we don't need to be roving around looking for external stimuli uh, we can start imagining things doing things for ourselves cooking for ourselves that kind of stuff that's great as 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 a way of living that's a better way of living than what a lot of restless modern people had before this and you know the super how to put it the people who have the emptiest consumer lives are the ones who are hurting the most right the people who are always craving uh, quick stimulation, right the people who are out eating in restaurants or hanging out in bars every single day. Uh, there are people like that uh, it It forces people to reflect on what they 've got, think about their priorities, you know, stuff like that forces people to clean their closets or whatever, just deal with stuff that needs to be dealt with and that 's not a bad thing you know a a, a month 's lockdown every year. <laughs> if we had to do it and if we did it constructively and if it didn't cause people huge economic hardship, wouldn't be such a bad thing.
1: And when it comes to, um, like, um, uh, this, um, uh, emotional independence, uh, Uh, people can be pretty much divided into two groups, uh, the cold-blooded individuals and the warm-blooded. Basically like in Animal Kind, that you have the uh, cold-blooded individuals who need external warmth uh, to even stay alive, that they need that uh, constant stimulus from other people, they need that constant attention from other people to feel that they even exist in the society. And uh, uh, then... uh, you have the warm-blooded individuals, those who uh, create all the warmth they need in their own self, and they don't uh, depend on that external uh, stimulus and attention and validation, and they are completely fine on their own. And I think... uh, 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 this uh, situation must have gotten a lot of people thinking that about their life choices, that okay, that now that I actually have to stay at home and be alone with my own thoughts and just do everyday things, uh, am I able to do it and stay sane? And if I'm not, uh, maybe I have been doing something wrong.
2: Yeah, yeah, I like that distinction between cold and warm blooded people. I, I, the, the people who radiate their own life and the people who suck it in from other people, right? Uh, I, I like that a lot. Uh, I, I do think this is, it's trying for a lot of people because they're not used to it. And I don't want to be dismissive or heartless. You know, if people are feeling really cooped up, et cetera, they're, sometimes they're being forced to live actually a kind of normal life for the first time in their lives. You know, in more traditional societies, people don't have this constant stimulation that a lot of modern urban people have, right? They just don't. Uh, And and so uh, I, I think a lot of people are being forced to do stuff that they're not comfortable with yet, but it might actually be good for them in the long run just to spend a little, have a little downtime, a little time to sort through things, a little time to take stock of what they already have and maybe appreciate it more. And if they find that the life that they've created for themselves is so empty that they can't wait to get away from it maybe instead of just running around and distracting themselves constantly, they need to make fundamental changes. So they have a better life that they don't want to flee from.
1: Yeah. Uh, Uh, It's funny to see who are the people who are most eager to uh, flee their own lives, because you see a lot of uh, celebrities who are insanely rich people and insanely privileged people, and they are going out of their minds, and you can see that they are desperate, and it... It's not just that they have to be uh, at home because um, they, they, of course, have these multimillion dollar mansions, they have staff uh, running errands for them, so uh, uh, in any practical sense, that shouldn't be a problem for them. But you can see th- that uh, it affects them that they cannot go out there and get the doses of attention and worship they are used to getting, and they don't even get those doses online because all everybody talks about is the coronavirus. So they are not getting the attention to their own behavior that they usually get. And they are absolutely desperate, a lot of these celebrities. So they try to find uh, some bizarre ways to shoehorn themselves <laughs> into this corona discussion, like making videos of themselves washing hands or Madonna sitting naked in a bathtub, reading some sort of a prayer about coronavirus. So you can s- s- tell that these people are really desperate, that they cannot handle it, that they cannot get the external validation from other people in real life and on social media. And and in comparison to that, I feel very lucky that, uh, (laughs) uh, that even with all that wealth and all that privilege, if just being yourself without uh, um, external validation and constant attention and admiration for other people is that difficult for you, it must be a really difficult life. So so I, there, I, I, I have to say in these times it, it has been a, a, a sort of reality check for me too that uh, I actually have things pretty good. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I, I know that. Exactly. So it's easier for introverts than extroverts. And it's easier for normal extroverts than for extreme narcissists, basically, to, to, to deal with this stuff. And of course, practically every celebrity is an extreme narcissist. Uh, I mean, that's just what they do. Um, they're, they're hungry for attention. They construct images in the minds of other people. They live through their images in the minds of other people. And when they don't have that attention, they feel unreal. Yeah, uh, you know, What a sad thing to have all that wealth and to feel unreal unless somebody's watching you. Uh, years and years ago, somebody, I think I was in maybe high school at the time or maybe even earlier, somebody... Uh, one of my classmates said, "I'd love to be rich and famous someday," and I said, "Why famous? You know, I could understand wanting to be rich, but if I had a lot of money, the last thing I would be is famous. I'd be the most invisible person on the planet if I had the money to do that. You know, no one would be able to find me. Uh, I, I, I think valuing privacy. Privacy is like a huge luxury." Uh, and if you can afford it, uh, you know, if I, I could afford to have all that I wanted, I'd be the invisible man.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it, um, it's, uh, as you said uh, earlier about uh, valuing things that you already have, I think this has been uh, very a healthy experience and I, I actually am thinking that uh, I'm not going to go back into uh, fully into our n- normal life because I have realized uh, how much of the hurry uh, I felt uh, uh, was actually self-made that how much of it was actually my own choice that I then uh, stressed over now that I actually have had to cut uh, all of my uh, outside-of-home errands to the bare minimum, to what is actually necessary, it has really uh, helped me to realize how much of the stress and hurry in uh, my everyday life has actually been a choice instead of necessity. So uh, there are things to learn about this, For I think, for everyone.
2: Yeah, one thing I did notice early on uh, when this started, well, first of all, I started... I stopped going out and I had all these tickets and things. I was – movies and concerts and things like that I was planning on seeing and it's like I had to let go of all that, right? And suddenly I had evenings where I wasn't doing anything. And so initially I started – Chatting more with friends. It's like, how, how how are you doing today? Et cetera, et cetera. Texting away. Just keeping in touch. I got in touch with practically everyone I care about and said, I hope you're taking this seriously. There were a lot of conversations and things that happened in like the first week, right? And then it sort of dropped off because as some people started uh, holding up. They got really, really cranky with me. I started noticing that was what was happening next, right? Uh, people started getting irritable. And then I I started spending more time on social media, and so I spent started spending more time you know, on Twitter, uh, and boy, that that that's like Twitter's like television. It's a it's a time consuming but ultimately really unrewarding thing, like most things in life. Uh, uh, Eric Hoffer once said that you can't get enough of the things you don't really need, and, and meaning that. These things don't really satisfy you, so you think, well, maybe a little bit more will satisfy me. one more potato chip, one more you know uh, tweet or something like that let 's just scroll down one more time and see what 's there and it's empty though uh, it's it's kind of empty, but it leaves you wanting more, and so you eat the whole bag or suddenly an hour goes by, and you 've spent all this time on social media well i I really have decided to. Put a a screaming halt to that uh, because I realized that that has been um, something of a time sink. But one thing that I've done is I've isolated my smartphone and my internet connection to one room in the house. I don't take my phone with me. And in the other room, I have my desk where I read and write. And I've been finding slowly that I just spend more time at my desk. I'm, I'm reading more, I'm writing more. And that's really, really good. That's, that's what I want. And so I feel like this has sort of freed me up to do things that I should have been doing more of anyway. And so, uh, mm-hmm. one thing I did is I, I got a, I, I ordered a stack of Russian novels, <laughs> a stack of Dostoevsky novels, and also, uh, what else? Uh, a couple books by uh, Gadamer and Heidegger, some heavy reading, right? And D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love. And so I've, I've just been doing a lot more reading, including reading of really good literature. And uh, I, I feel like it's, it's actually been enriching. Uh, and I'm kind of glad to have been nudged into doing this, to be perfectly honest. It's, it's not a bad thing. And I think that, that you know, difficulty brings good things out in us sometimes right it's nice to have uh, a little bit of adversity that you can rise to uh, these these little nudges they they it's not catastrophic i mean I, i'm not starving or whatever right that would be terrible but changing my lifestyle and life patterns has been an opportunity actually to focus on things that are more important so that's not a bad thing
1: and those adversities I have uh, uh, or I keep running into these uh, tweets and social media posts uh, that I think are very uplifting and they come from mothers and fathers of uh, families and uh, uh, they often have the same theme that uh, now that they their kids and spouses are at home all the time and uh, at first they were panicking about how, how they are going to uh, deal with it that other is their relationship going to go sour now that they have to actually spend time with each other a lot? And how are they going to manage uh, uh, when they actually have to take care of their kids' education themselves and keep the kids entertained uh, every day? Uh, and you get, I saw a lot of that panic in the beginning uh, of these. Uh, of people starting to lock down, but now that uh, some time has passed, you start seeing a completely different sort of posts. At these about from these proud moms who uh, are showing off what their kids are doing, what they what they are doing with their families, and you can tell that they are really having that sort of eureka moment that holy shit i can actually do this that uh, i can actually spend time with my family i can actually take care of my kids i we can take care of our work and it's all all alright. and that it's actually pretty nice to hang around with the family so i i think uh, uh, this will uh, for many families this will also have a a good impact on family relations that they realize that uh, Uh, actually spending time with your family is uh, a good thing. And, uh, for example, homeschooling your children is not an impossible thing. You can do it if you you just uh, choose to go ahead with it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that totally. And, And this is going to feed into, again, I think some ideological and cultural advantages to us. The more families spend at home, time they spend together educating their kids, uh, the less time people spend, uh, consuming propaganda. Of course, a lot of them are watching Netflix, right? (laughs) But, uh, they're, they're not in classrooms, uh, getting, you know, the kinds of lessons that are, are being put through the public school system, which are highly propagandistic. So kids are getting unplugged from propaganda at schools. And I think, uh, they're getting, to be closer to their families, which is a good thing if they have good families, right? Uh, and most families are good, so uh, these are going to be positive things down the road. We know that people who are homeschooled have more independent minds, for instance. It's just a fact, so that's that's not a bad thing. Also, I've been hearing from women who have been at home with their kids for the first time, maybe ever. Uh, that gosh. This this old fashioned housewife thing, th- th- this wasn't the hell that was sold to me, uh, <laughs> you know, through the the you know feminist brainwashing. This is actually kind of a nice thing. Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to go back to work uh, in the office, right? Uh, the, the the great lie of modern feminism is ex- te- telling women that it's oppression to stay home with the uh, uh, you know to be at home working for a husband and a family, basically, and it's freedom to be in an office working for a multinational corporation. That's just crazy.
0: Yeah, with the lockdown, we have online teaching currently in Finland. And one of my friends called me a few days ago, and he said that one of his work colleagues who never spoke about any issues, he now that he's on you know in lockdown he has the time to watch what uh, his kids are learning at school and for the first time in uh, ever he mentioned that have you seen what what crap they are uh, teaching in our schools
2: yeah Yeah, this is actually uh, something that's been talked about in the U.S. media. Uh, College professors are worried that the parents of their students are going to see the kind of stuff that they're being educated in. and This might create problems for, well, basically for brainwashing, right? Uh, And it's hilarious. But yeah, this makes them more accountable, I think, which is not a bad thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a a good good red pill for parents too, because uh, uh, especially here in Finland, people trust the authorities, people trust the institutions of the government. So uh, I don't know if many people realize how wary they should be about the education these days, because it really has been infiltrated by all of these uh, lgbtd organizations uh, w- which are more than willing to push their own agenda at the uh, 10 year olds or even like uh, daycare age uh, children and now that uh, the parents are actually seeing what, <laughs> what their kids are being taught and they actually have the time and uh, even have to do so uh, they that they have to go through their kids' school books, they might realize, holy crap, is this what they really are teaching kids?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, just to, to get the sex ed stuff uh, broadcast into people's homes where parents can see what's going on must be quite, quite uh, damaging. You know, the entire world should be forced to attend Drag Queen Story Hour once. It's all it would take, just, just once. Adult education for little kids, right? <laughs> One session of that for every voter would produce a revolution, I think.
1: And in our hometown, uh, uh, they uh, launched this uh, government-funded project called Save All that in name at least was supposed to combat a sex offense, like a, a grooming of children, uh, but for some reason, uh, I think uh, through this uh, LGBT in, uh, uh, organization, Influence, uh, uh, it ended up being a sort of uh, very degenerate uh, sex ed uh, program. And uh, going through the materials of that program was, was abso- absolutely horrifying. That uh, They, for example, had like this... Sex vocabulary alias game for children, which was like a word explanation game uh, to play at school. And it was meant for 13 to 15 year olds. And the game was that uh, the kids had to explain uh, sex vocabulary and the other students need to guess what uh, the person is uh, explaining, uh, that what the word is. And the words in that game included stuff like uh, uh, (coughs) uh, bondage, voyeurism, S&M, and and, uh, squirting. And uh, and, uh, we were saying that, okay, let's make the city council do this themselves. Okay, let's have a city council meeting where we put the fucking councillors... To, in the, on the spot to explain to others what is squirting. And if you are not willing to do that, if you think that it's inappropriate, if you think that's workplace harassment, if you think that's, uh, 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 that's too sensitive and you would be embarrassed to do this, why are you m- making teenagers do this? <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah how, that's brilliant.
0: <laughs> and how is it uh, helping uh, again to fight against grooming gangs? Uh, I, I
2: you, it just uh, sounds like you've gotten some grooming gang, uh, <laughs> you know, creating this entire uh, educational thing. Frankly, uh,
0: yeah, this uh, this came up a bit before the coronavirus. Now, now uh, we haven't spoken about this. Uh, it's, or it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's been forgotten by people because of the coronavirus, but uh, we'll come back to it. Uh, There was one super chat by Lemu, and uh, he says, Hello, Greg, I was hoping to meet you at the first awakening. Unfortunately, wasn't able to make it. Big fan of your work five years into the future. What form do you think globalistic agenda will take?
2: Five years in the future, what's it going to be like? Uh, Well, I think globalism is going to be retreating. Five years into the future uh, it 's already retreating, frankly, uh, populism and nationalism are on the rise in a lot of white countries and non white countries too and I think that 's a very positive chain of events that's a that 's a great trend i 've spoken about and written about this book called National Populism by Roger Eatwell and Matthew Goodwin, which talks about how deep seated and prevalent, uh, widespread and deep-seated, these trends are towards national populism. And it's it's very, cons- uh, very white-pilling. It's very encouraging. Uh, right now, there's a party in Portugal, a national populist party in Portugal, that is rising in the polls. They've risen from practically nothing to being, I think, the fourth most popular party in the country. That's progress. So I think that populism... Is going to be on the rise in five years still, and globalism is going to be retreating. Now, of course, what they'll do is eh, they can't admit that they're wrong. It's very difficult to admit that you're wrong. It's embarrassing, right? Yeah. Especially if your errors cost people lives. You know that that's very very difficult to admit. Uh, if you admit that uh, you did something absolutely terrible in 2015 uh, and by saying let's let all these migrants in well you're admitting to being the cause of deaths and rapes and terrorist attacks it's very difficult for people to do because it's like well it's confessing to murder basically at least negligent homicide put it this way um, all the leaders of Europe and especially Angela Merkel are guilty of negligent homicide at best for their policies. It's going to be hard for them to admit. Slowly, these people have to be ground out of office, pushed out of office. But you know, they're not going to just disappear. They're going to be on advisory boards and international panels and things being done by the UN. There's ungodly amounts of money floating around from the United Nations and from George Soros and all these other NGOs promoting globalism. And these people who have created all these problems, they might be out of office, but they will take up nests in institutions of higher education, in various institutes and things like that. And they will continue pushing this. They'll continue pushing it through the media and the educational system. And we just have to keep pushing back. Right, we, we cannot rest until every one of these people is totally discredited. We can't stop them from speaking. I wouldn't want to stop them from speaking. But we want to inoculate enough people against them that the, everything they say falls on deaf ears and that people don't make the same stupid mistakes again. That's our task. And I think we're only going to get better and better at this. I think... More and more people are coming in the right direction. I think we 're going to be able to get better funding, uh, more talent, more organizations and we 're just going to keep pushing our message and they 're going to keep retreating in the face of it and eventually we 're going to win we 're going to win because reality's on our side, and we have momentum on our side now uh, we 're the only people who can really produce good social outcomes for people we 're the people who can guarantee. Prosperity, security, and peace to the people of our homelands. The establishments are running, uh, running everything into the ground. They can't guarantee those things anymore. They've discredited themselves, and I, I. So that's that's the direction. What what concretely do we do? Well, more of more of the same, right? We publish more books, we do more podcasts, we do articles, we do debates, we organize political parties and forums and things like that. The most important thing that we can do, actually, though, is in the realm of business, we need, as we talked about earlier, a monetizable free speech video blogging and live streaming platform that would produce a cultural renaissance that would be so helpful to us. We also need uh, b- basically ways of doing getting financial services, uh, credit card processing, PayPal-like things, right? That would be enormously helpful too. A free speech PayPal and a free speech YouTube would be enormously helpful. And I think eventually we're going to get those things because we're getting people with the skills and the capital and the commitment to make these things happen. So that's what I'd like to see five years from now. I'd like to see more work in our direction, more momentum in our direction, and I'd like to see these kinds of platforms actually existing. That, I think, would be enormously helpful.
1: And I think you're, it's really important what you said that, that, uh, uh, about uh, how difficult it is to admit uh, to a mistake of this magnitude. and. Uh, it's uh, important, especially when we are dealing with uh, average people, people who are not politicians and who are, have uh, supported these ideologies, because uh, many of them are not bad people. Actually, they supported those ideologies because they are well-meaning people and they wanted to do good and they wanted to help people. and It's understandable that when you are coming from that position, that that is the motivation of your actions. And then it turns out that actually you have caused devastation, you have caused... uh horrific crimes to happen and there is blood on your hands it's i understand it's even more difficult to admit that sort of a mistake if you have actually had honest to god good intentions all along and that's why i think it's important that nationalists uh, 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 are sort of open for converts uh, without judgment so that if uh, some per- some person Uh, regardless of what their previous political uh, uh, opinions or activism has included, if they uh, honestly uh, have second thoughts and uh, realize their mistakes and are willing to admit that they got it wrong, that we shouldn't hold their mistakes against them. Because that's uh, the only way to uh, uh, gain popularity for the movement, to be accepting to new people uh, without judgment uh, of their past failures. And it's also uh, opening a door that will uh, uh, decrease the popularity of uh, uh, our enemies, because uh, we will be saying to their supporters that, hey, if you feel, feel that you have... Uh, gone wrong with your policies there and you you start to realize that you are making you have been making mistakes we are okay with you coming here we are not going to judge you so i think that's important
2: yeah i i would agree with that years ago when i was in graduate school one of my professors was talking to me and he told me about how he had discovered that something he had been doing as a father with the best of intentions had been terribly harmful to his son, and when it finally broke through, he said suddenly, I understood original sin <laughs> this this idea that you can be guilty of something without even knowing it, right uh, you know, just sort of guilty at the in the core." Uh, of of the way you've been and he said it was it was just profoundly upsetting. Now, I don't think it's literally like the theological notion of original sin, but that's how he felt. He said, "Oh my god, to just wake up to the fact that what you that you've been doing wrong and feeling really good about yourself." <laughs> that's a terrible realization. And yeah, if if that's possible, then you, well, if people make attempts to change what they're doing, if they make attempts to improve, you've, you've got to be able to forgive them, right? And it's very, very important to do that. Yes, because we do want to win people over to our side and we want to win people over who especially can testify to how <laughs> seductive you know, the, the establishment outlook is and how they overcame it. Those are very valuable people, those are people who can help lead the way for others to change their thinking. That's very important. Another thing that we have to bear in mind, and this is, this is a purely Machiavellian idea. In fact, it comes from Machiavelli's The Prince. He says in The Prince, you must always allow your enemies a way of retreating. Because if there's no way that they can retreat, then they'll fight all the harder. Right. So we have to, in a way, give them opportunities to retreat, also to defect. Right. Uh, Because the more people who are on your side and fighting for your side and the fewer people fighting for your enemies makes it more likely that you win. And one of the ways that you can do that is to have a way that they can defect to you. But they're not going to defect to you if you, uh, if you wave the Turner diaries at them and say, ah, Day of the Rope, that's what's awaiting you for all your sins, right? You know, that, that kind of stuff is uh, totally a non-starter uh, for actual political change. So I, I agree with that. I think you're absolutely right. We, we need to find a way of doing that. And people who have been wrong and admit that they were wrong those people are golden. Those people are really valuable uh, as teachers because a lot of people can relate to them. And what they're doing is courageous and should be admired because it really, really is hard to admit that you've been wrong, especially if you've got blood on your hands.
1: And uh, uh, I think um – uh, most of the people in the nationalist scene that I personally know uh, used to be at least somewhat more liberal when they started off. And uh, Yunus and I are like that too, that I was, uh, I, I would uh, consider myself uh, when I was young, uh, a sort of mainstream liberal. I wasn't that politically active, but uh, I had... Uh, the, the, you know, the common liberal opinions, uh, the very average opinions of uh, a young woman who hasn't uh, really thought about these things very thoroughly. And Junez also uh, was... uh, liberal and actually even voted for pretty much the worst president in Finnish history, Tarja Halonen, who is this, uh, like the short-haired uh, left-wing feminist woman, <laughs> and she caused a, a lot of damage, and uh, back in the day uh, when Junez was uh, a liberal he actually voted for her but uh, there is always uh, a chance to Chance, uh, chance for, uh, or a second chance if you just are willing to admit that okay, I got it wrong. <laughs> but you, yeah,
2: I, I used to be a libertarian. <laughs> yeah, I used to believe all this stuff uh, that I think is profoundly destructive of society, that dissolves society. I used to believe that, and I thought my way out of it. I just realized no that. It's not taking into account certain things that are important. I used to be a libertarian. Now I'm a statist. <laughs> I used to be an individualist. Now I'm a collectivist. I- I've changed my thinking on some pretty radical issues just because, well, I go through life with my eyes open and I listen to people's arguments. And if I hear better arguments that I can't refute, I change my mind. So, uh, yeah, I'm th- th- Everybody who is a white nationalist today was something else before they were a white nationalist, right? And there was always a period of time before they got into this that they were hesitant and cautious and they wanted to tiptoe around the issues and they wanted to dip their toe in and get comfortable with it. And they, you know, they were a little intimidated by it. And if we don't own up to the fact that that's the universal condition that we ourselves were in not so long ago, uh, then we're just kind of jerks <laughs> and uh, forbidding people, uh, you know, to the people who are coming along. And we we should be, you know, open to the fact that if everybody – that nobody's born an, an ethno-nationalist, especially in this world – and therefore they have to come to this through some kind of pathway and that pathway is a path of of starting an error and moving towards truth and starting out with things that are comfortable and safe and moving towards things that are edgy and risky and we have to be somewhat sympathetic to them because really that's just being sympathetic to ourselves. It's being realistic about the own, the processes that we ourselves went through.
1: That's exactly it. And the, uh, especially kids who are growing up today, uh, they have their heads filled with propaganda from every direction since, they, since they're born. That the, the children's TV shows that they watch, uh, that their parents are sort of oblivious about and think that they are just a nice wholesome entertainment uh, are these days uh, stacked with uh, uh, liberal and even like LGBT and uh, uh, multiracialist agenda. And then they go to daycare centers where they also have this anti-racist agenda and even the drag queen story hours and all that. Then they go to school and the same continues. And all the while they are also exposed to the mainstream media that pushes the liberal agenda at them. They are also exposed to the entertainment industry, which also has that same agenda. So it's basically expecting the impossible of a person to expect that uh, people would come out of that uh, naturally as ethno-nationalists and traditionalists without uh, being scarred by that constant propaganda in any way. I think it's only understandable that the kids these days are liberals, but I Uh, know that uh, many of them won't be that for the rest of their lives, that uh, at some point in their lives, uh, a lot of them will get red-pilled.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that change is coming at us really, really fast now. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to ignore the negative consequences of multiculturalism and globalization. This is why I'm optimistic, even if the worst-case scenarios happen in terms of censorship and deplatforming. Because the reason why people are becoming national populists, ethno-nationalists, rejecting globalism and multiculturalism, is not because you and I can talk in public on live streams about it. It's not because Jared Taylor had a Twitter account. It's not because we can... Put our ideas out on the internet. It's because people are confronting the consequences of, of immigration and multiculturalism and globalization in their lives, and that's driving them to, in our direction. And then they discover our stuff. And I hope they discover good stuff that's constructive and deepens their understanding and points them in the direction of actual real political change. I hope they find that. But even if we're not out here talking, People are still being educated because it's the system that's producing nationalists far more effectively than nationalists are producing nationalists. And so they can censor us all they want, but as long as they keep pushing these policies and doubling down on them, they're going to be converting more people than we ever could.
1: And uh, uh, about that, uh, like uh, social media and technology and uh Uh, uh, there is also that aspect to this uh, pandemic thing that uh, now we see a lot more surveillance being developed that uh, many countries have already adopted systems in which uh, for example cell phones or even ankle bands are used to monitor citizens movement and uh, uh, in Finland they are planning a mobile app that would basically uh, track your movements and uh, uh, if uh, uh, you got uh, infected with the coronavirus, it would then alert people who had been in your presence and who also have that app that, that they uh, they have been exposed to the virus. And uh, I am, uh, even though I am all for the social distancing and, uh, uh, and uh, the other very reasonable measures that we take uh, to protect ourselves and uh, other people from the virus, I am very wary about these uh, technological uh, solutions because we already know what sort of people are uh, running (laughs) running the tech companies and we we know that they are not on our side. So what do you think about all this?
2: Yeah, why don't they just give people like a, a scarlet letter that they sew under their clothes or a a yellow star or something, (laughs) you know, if they're sick, right? There there are ways that people did this in the past to identify if somebody was an adulteress or somebody was was Jewish or something like that. Uh, I'm sure there was a way that you could identify if somebody was sick, right? Um, Without having smartphones (laughs) tracking you or ankle monitors and things like that. I, I honestly don't think it's a terrible thing, though, if somebody is a is a, a plague carrier, if there's some way that you know about it, right? Uh, but um, it's like putting a bell on a cat. It saves a lot of birds, right? Um, but yeah, th- this kind of totalitarian stuff bothers me. Everybody's going to have to have a, a certificate to show that they're healthy or something like that. This is the last gasp of the very establishment that created all these problems to begin with and and this is a danger that we face this is an opportunity for megalomaniacs to gain more power this is you know this anthony fauci guy uh, he's he's like a weird Doctor Strange Love character. Everybody should watch the scene in Doctor Strange Love, where Doctor Strange Love starts going on about you know how we can have mine shafts and you know <laughs> and things like that, and we'll survive underground for a hundred years, et cetera. Uh, it's 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 hilarious. It's quite funny. Uh, and it's, I, I think of these people like this fellow who's the brother of Rahm Emanuel, who's certainly a mischievous person. Uh, this doctor saying, yes, we'll have to give up on all these things. It's like, no, this is Dr. Strangelove trying to, a, a little bit of a coup d'etat in a, in, na- in a time of national crisis. Of course, you've got Bill Gates. Uh, you know, we, we, it's reasonable to resist overreach and invasive things from the state because there's good reason not to trust these people. I mean, these are the people who brought disaster on us beforehand. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're the cause of this in many ways. But by the same token, we have to recognize that it is legitimate for there to be some state things. In fact, only the state can really stop this. So it puts us in a very difficult position. And, you know, a few weeks ago, Millennial Woes put a tweet out and he says, well, you know, it's not reasonable for us to be totally dismissive of people who are skeptical about this. Why? Well, because these, you know, this is the establishment that says that diversity is a strength. Uh, that immigration is a strength, that ignored the Rotherham rape crisis and all these other rape gangs, uh, that uh, gave us the migrant crisis, that tells us that the races are equal, that tells us that climate change is going to kill us all, etc. This establishment has debauched itself uh, with lies and corruption, and it's reasonable for people not to trust it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, It's reasonable for people not to trust this establishment. And this, this is the price they have paid for all these lies and for all this corruption. When they actually have to do something and they're the only ones who can do something in a crisis, they have lost the trust of the public. One of the major problems with Donald Trump's response to this crisis is that he did not trust the quote unquote intelligence people uh, who were feeding him all these stories about how this is a serious problem. Why didn't he trust them? Because he knows these people. Uh, he, he knows, he knows the deep state basically and he knows how partisan they are and how non-objective they are. they, cried Wolf and cried Russiagate, Russiagate and collusion and all this stuff. They were spying on people who supported him. They did all these things that caused the president not to trust them. And then when they needed to be trusted in an absolute crisis, this was a, a point of failure. Uh, you know, it, it, There are lots and lots of lessons here.
1: I'm, I'm sort of worried uh, mostly about um uh, the aftermath that uh, uh, okay, I can see the uh, rationale behind these uh, mobile apps and other uh, surveillance measures if they are uh, uh, voluntary that people choose to uh, uh, use them and can to cho- also choose to opt out but uh, then uh, what will happen afterwards like uh, when all of this, uh, when this pandemic at some point has passed, uh, and then you have set the precedent of using this sort of technology to monitor people's movements and uh, Uh, behaviors and gather that sort of data about citizens that uh, I'm sort of worried that you will have uh, people who will say well now that we have this technology and it works so well with that uh, we could also use this use it for this and this and this uh, that uh, I'm not sure if our Rulers are willing to give that sort of measure up once they are given it.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, most definitely. And and this is an, another hazard. It's a hazard that we face. And it's a hazard that we face because they allowed this crisis to become so big in the first place. I mean, if if they had just shut down flights from China when this started, it would have gotten – it. there would be a lot of people alive today, if they'd just shut down flights from China and just said to businessmen, sorry, you're going to have to do FaceTime or whatever, <laughs> right? No more business trips. Sorry, no more Chinese tourists, not from these hot zones. If if we had just shut that down and if we had quarantined people who had come back from them, just taken sensible measures, we wouldn't be in a situation where now, you know, huge percentages perhaps of our unknown percentages unknown but pr- quite large, probably, percentages of our population are carrying this stuff around. And we have to start talking about these sorts of measures for tracking people, right? I mean, th- that's, that's an unfortunate consequence of the negligence of an incompetence of the system the, uh, way back when this could have been really nipped in the bud.
0: But in yesterday's press conference, Trump said that uh – When there were zero cases in the U.S., uh, they started screening at three airports in the U.S. people coming from China. So there was some action, but it was not enough. Yeah,
2: Yeah, well, exactly. Um, There was a, a journalist who I think put out on Twitter and it was retweeted by somebody that I follow who had just come back from the United States from Italy reporting on the coronavirus outbreak. And she arrives, I think in New York at JFK and asks around, uh, is there there anything I should do? If you've ever gone through customs at JFK, there are thousands of people going through this. There are hundreds of people lined up streaming through customs at all times. They don't, they don't really have anything in place to screen people uh, in the numbers that are, that are actually coming in. They just don't. And, uh, that that's 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 a real weakness of the system.
0: Yeah, there was an article uh, saying that you shouldn't blame the Chinese; you should blame Europeans because uh, it was the Europeans who brought uh, the disease uh, from uh, Italy. But uh,
2: yeah. well, um, it was also Chinese who who were flying uh, flying around. Uh, there are a lot of Chinese living in northern Italy, which was an unpleasant fact that I had been completely unaware of for a long time until. Tens of thousands of people got sick and, and, and many, many thousands died. I didn't know there were 300,000 Chinese living in party. In what an astonishing thing. Why should that be the case?
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: because when you are buying the shirts that have the Made in Italy tag, tag on them, you are actually buying uh, Chinese-made products uh, that the- – from factories that are located in Italy, and when you are buying Italian tomato sauce, uh, <clears throat> you are uh, uh, buying tomato sauce uh, that was grown on fields that are in Italy, but it was uh, grown and picked by uh, African migrants. So uh, that's how the industry is in Italy, that they have a lot of this uh, cheap foreign labor there.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate. It's like, you might be eating in a French restaurant in New York, but if you go in the kitchen, they're all Mexican restaurants. You know, (laughs) it might be for a French restaurant out front, but it's a Mexican restaurant uh, in back.
1: Exactly. And uh, uh, we are uh, closing to two hours here. And this has been a really uh, interesting discussion. So... uh, uh, well, what would be your closing take when it comes to this uh, uh, the aftermath of the pandemic? That uh, what, what do you think people should uh, focus on fighting for and uh, uh, what they should be wary about?
2: Well, I, I think that I wrote an essay called how coronavirus will change the world. And I just made very clear how certain political lessons can be drawn from this, that the more globalized a country is, the more vulnerable it is, the more liberal and individualist a country, the more vulnerable it is, and on and on. Those lessons just need to be repeated over and over again, I think, uh, because we can make important political progress with this virus. Uh, We can get better policies if people pay attention to this. Also, I think that this is going to be very traumatic for a lot of people. Uh, the lockdown is traumatic. Uh, getting sick, uh, knowing people who died, it's its very traumatic. I think there's going to be a deep visceral horror of this for a long, long time to come, especially in the elites because, again, they're more vulnerable than people who live in rural areas, Right. Uh, The very elites who brought this crisis upon us are the most vulnerable to it. And I think that they're going to learn some stuff from this. But we have to keep pushing these lessons. So I I recommend reading the article I wrote, How Coronavirus Will Change the World, Uh, and just repeating, (laughs) just rinse and repeat over and over and over again the the basic talking points uh, that we can come up with. Uh, that argue that this is an example of how uh, xenophobia is not such a bad thing if it saves you, how globalism is not a good thing if it makes you vulnerable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and those are those are good talking points, and I think it's uh, it's it's valuable. I also think it's a great argument against, as we were talking about earlier, this sort of empty consumerist lifestyle. It's, uh, that's a very fragile lifestyle. And if, if that's how you live, uh, you're melting down. Whereas people who are more grounded, people who do things more themselves, people who can entertain themselves, <laughs> you know, people who have families and things like that, they're riding through this better than the sex in the city crowd, right? So that's, that's a good lesson to push too. And the other thing is, I think we just need to be attentive to the snakes who are going to come forward and try and argue that this is an argument for more globalism, right? They'll say it because they're shameless, right? Uh, But we have to, we have to point and laugh at these people. At a certain point, you just have to point and laugh and say, this doesn't pass the laugh test. Ha ha, right? It's that, that nasty kid on the playground in the Simpsons. You point and you go, ha ha, uh, because they're they're saying stupidity, and they they just need to be mocked. At a certain point, really bad ideas. You know, you 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 analyze them, you refute them, and when you keep hearing them over and over again, <laughs> you just have to start pointing at these people and and uh, laughing at them, or and also calling them out for being dishonest. You know, gradually that's how we come to hate these people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um...
1: And I think
0: there are a couple of audience messages. Um, uh. Yeah, says, thank you for this uplifting D-Live stream. Special thanks to Greg Johnson. Stay safe and stay in good health.
2: Yeah, thank you. And everybody out there, stay safe and stay in good health. We want to be the ones who survive this disproportionately. And if it carries off some of the globalists, well, that just makes us stronger. So don't be out there uh, amongst the handshaking uh airplane flying you know uh, globalist elites who are really getting hit hard by this
0: yeah yeah it's um
2: any other questions out there
0: uh no the, the well there were some but uh, they were they had nothing to do with uh, the thing, so uh,
1: <laughs> the uh, the topic of the live stream uh, like Finnish uh, super chat so uh, I think uh, we'll uh, pick them up uh, uh, in the very end of the stream uh, okay. but uh, this has been a very interesting uh, discussion and uh, it always uh, flows so smoothly with you that uh, you make our work very easy
2: <laughs> well I, I always find it really stimulating to talk to you 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 both of you, you have really good minds, good analytical minds, and you put things really well and again it it just always humbles me when i 'm talking to comrades in Europe who are speaking so eloquently in what 's your third language uh, probably so yeah it's uh, it's very impressive, so thank you so much for having me on
1: yeah. and um, you could of course um uh, tell people if you have uh, some upcoming projects that you are working on and, uh, of course, uh, uh, where pe- people can uh, find you and support you if they...
2: Yeah, well, here. countercurrents.com. Counter-currents.com is my platform. I'm also on Twitter at New right America. I have an account at uh, Entropy if people want to use that to send donations. We have been so deplatformed. <laughs> I, I don't know of anybody who's been thrown off of more payment processors than CounterCurrents at this point. Uh, but uh, we do have an Entropy account and you can find that at the end of any of the recent posts up at CounterCurrents if you want to send a donation that way. I'm going to start live streaming because I think it's a, it's just a good thing to do. And I will be doing super chats and things like that. We also have a podcast that we do every Friday, CounterCurrents Radio, and I'll probably do a live stream maybe on Mondays. I haven't quite decided on that yet. So I'm out there and I, if you don't know my work, check it out. CounterCurrents publishes two or three original things every day, uh, five days a week, I should say. Uh, articles mostly and reviews, but also we uh, have a weekly podcast. Occasionally, we have links to videos and things like that produced by people who are sort of in our circle. Uh, and uh, it's it's I think the best English language metapolitical webzine out there. And we last month we had more than three hundred and thirty thousand unique visitors coming in, uh, which surprised me. So uh, it, it's breaking through it's 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 having it's having an impact so come and check it out
1: yes absolutely go uh, go and uh, read the articles because i i th- i very much enjoyed these uh, countercurrents articles and if you like uh, stuff like uh, taggy mac or american renaissance you will like countercurrents too uh, that, that they're shorter pieces and then they they have a lot of these uh, longer analytical pieces and i think they are all very interesting and I think and I be, believe that the, adding a live stream uh, to your uh, content uh, will definitely add more buzz uh, when it comes to audience interest.
2: Yeah I, I agree so thanks so much and I, I'm going to run but uh, l- let's do this again soon I would really love to do this again Absolutely. soon. Yep great okay good night.
0: Good night. Bye. Okay, so this was uh, the first episode of uh, Out of Line. I thought we could have um, named the show, um, the Lokka Weeks uh, show or something, but Tina said uh, Out of Line. And uh, yeah, this was the first episode. Uh, we will be in the future. Our schedules are on uh, Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, 10 Finnish time, and that's uh, 3 Eastern. in.
1: Uh, yeah, and uh, 14 CT for uh, Americans.
0: Yeah, two, 2 Central time, and uh, it's 9 Central European time, it's uh, 8 British time, and so on. So, but we'll uh, follow us on uh, Twitter, and uh, follow us also on uh, D Live and uh, I'll... Uh, and, and
1: uh, on this Friday, uh, at the same time, uh, we'll be joined by Freddy Meteor, uh, who, uh, whose uh, livestream we actually visited just uh, on Monday. Yesterday. Uh, to, yeah, to talk about the, the min- Stephen King miniseries, uh, The Stand. And uh, Frody has this uh, <coughs> uh, cool livestream series that is actually ongoing now. It started a few days ago, and he, he, it's called the Decameron Film Festival. And he has interesting guests on there, and each guest has chosen some movie or uh, TV show that they will be discussing on that uh, uh, live stream. And they, they will be streaming every day, and they have uh, great guests coming up, as you can see E. Michael Jones, Kenny MacDonald, Jared Taylor, uh, Gilad Asmon, Alexander Dugin. Like, uh, th- that was surprising to me that uh, they could uh, snatch Dugin for a live stream. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'll end this with a a song that was requested by uh, Greg, and uh, as was the intro song. So uh, thanks, uh, I hope you enjoyed this, and uh, let's see on, uh, yeah, mostly we stream in Finnish, but Tuesdays and Fridays, at this hour, we are streaming in English, so I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, let's see on uh, Friday.
1: Yeah. Bye.